Welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The Science, the show that breaks down the science of television and movies with a comedian and a scientist. Today we're discussing 47 meters down. I'll ask about shark cages, the bends, hopefully somebody brings up that Radiohead album, and of course, sisters who push terrible ideas on you until you give in. But first, a short word from our sponsor. The Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Ethan Edinburgh, and I've got two wonderful guests joining me today. Our first guest is a writer, actor, cartoonist, and comedian who has appeared on The Late Late Show with James Corden. Please welcome to the show, Paige Weldon. Hi, it's me. Hey, Paige. What's up? Oh, not too much. Just thinking about Mandy more than, more than I have in years. <laughs> more, more. <laughs> yep, and you're welcome for that. <laughs> Yep, uh, she was definitely in this and not singing about candy, which was a little bit of a bummer. <laughs> yeah, I was totally thrown off. There were no walks to remember in this. <laughs> nope, a lot of like floats to remember, I guess. <laughs> injuries to remember. I'm Swimming, not <laughs> injuries, very memorable injuries. Yeah, that's for sure, unfortunately. Um, so what about you, Paige? Have you ever been in a situation like this? Have you ever been in a shark cage? Have you ever been scuba diving? No. <laughs> That's going to be a hard no. I really identified with Lisa. Was it Lisa as Mandy's, mm -hmm. Mandy Moore's character? I was like, uh, I would be like, you know what? Uh, I don't really need Stuart to think I'm fun. Uh, this sounds bad. <laughs> <laughs> so you're similar to her in that you are scared to go in a shark cage and you would need to be pushed severely, but you are not like yes. her because you wouldn't be trying to like prove that you're fun to an ex by hanging out with sharks. Listen, we've all done crazy things for love, but I, I and it's easy for me to say because I'm not in the scenario, but I want to say I would say let's not do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Well, then uh, we are similar as well because I think that that is chaos. The string of yeah. events that <laughs> began this movie was chaos to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the string of events that start the movie are almost meaningless. This is like one of those movies where you basically... They like don't, it doesn't matter what the characters are at all. <laughs> like you briefly learn something about them and then it's like uh, on to the thrills, you know? Yes, yes, so true. Um, but uh, <laughs> but helping us uh, dissect the, these thrills is our second guest. He is a professor at Flinders University. Please welcome to the show, Charlie Hooveneers. Good morning. Good morning, Charlie. How are you doing? Yeah, very good, thanks. Or how goes it? Is that what you guys say? Uh, yeah, oh, good day kind of thing. It's a whole range of things, I guess. Okay, good day. Good day to you. Thank you for joining us and uh, watching this movie. Had you seen this movie before? I hadn't seen that one, but I did see another couple of movies that were very similar and also related to, to cage diving going wrong and to sharks and to a lot of blood. <laughs> Wait a minute, similar? I've never heard of another movie like this. Shark attack horror movie? Yeah, I thought this movie was unique. <laughs> I, I wish it was, um, but unfortunately there's plenty out there. Yeah, so we have to talk about this. You, if I'm not mistaken, are in a new show that premieres on Nat Geo on July 5th called Shark Beach with Chris Hemsworth. And you, like, take him through some sort of new tech. Is that correct? 
Yeah, so as part of my research, we do a lot of work on shark bite mitigation measures. And, and some of the work we're doing is testing uh, personal shark deterrence and testing which of the many devices commercially available actually do work and, and which one can try to reduce shark bite risks. Wow. Okay, so this sounds to me like shark bites are a legit risk. But when I've spoken with, uh, with other scientists about it, it sounds like sharks don't really bite people that often. It's way more rare than you would think. Yeah, that's right. It's a very low probability. You know, it's, it's something that compared to other risks, shark bite risk is actually quite small, um, especially for, for most people. But at the same time, they, they can happen, they do happen. And some people do go in the ocean a lot. You know, if you look at the abalone divers or surfers that go in the water every single morning, the risk is, is still small, but it starts increasing the more time you do spend in the water. And, and even if the risks are small, you know, try to tell to, uh, to, to a parent that might have lost their child to, to a shark bite, that it could have reduced that, that bite from taking place by wearing a few deterrents. It, it, it can make a difference. Um, to the victim, to the family of the victim, but also to the communities uh, where those events happens. Wow. Okay. Absolutely. That makes sense. So, so what kind of deterrence are we talking about? What are, is it a special sunscreen? <laughs> uh, they haven't worked that one out yet, <laughs> although we did test a special wax um, that was supposed to be deterring sharks. Um, and yeah, based on our testing, that wax for the surfboard didn't work at all. Um, R.I.P. to that surfer. I'm totally picturing that stuff that you like put on a dog's wound to keep them from licking it. Do you know what I'm talking about? The stuff that mm -hmm. <laughs> the sharks are like, yeah, we're, we're past that. <laughs> Well, that wax was using chili and citronella. And I think yeah. the idea behind it is that um, by using product that could deter other predators like um, like snakes or bears, um, they would also start deterring sharks. But yeah, that didn't quite work at all. Wow. Okay. So which, what kind of deterrents do work? What have you personally invented that will save all of our lives from sharks? So I have to be honest, and I, I haven't invented anything. <laughs> um, I'm merely, I'm merely the, the, the group or the person testing the device for the various uh, manufacturers. And out of the, the various product we tested, the, 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 the deterrents that use an electric field to deter sharks seems to be working the best. And let me get this right, because I, I spoke with a shark expert, which, by the way, what do I call you guys? Uh, sharkologists? How does this work? Yeah. Uh, we typically try not to be too species-centric, so I mm. typically refer myself just as a marine biologist or marine ecologist. Okay, but that can mean so many things. I'm talking about sharks. You, you've Shark ecologist, um, yeah. or if you want to shorten it, sharkologist works. Yeah, I yeah. think sharkologist sounds really cool. And so they have like a sixth sense, is that correct? Like they, ha they can uh, detect electric fields in a way that we can't. So is that why this electric deterrent works? Exactly, and it's even referred as a seventh sense because they also have a lateral line that can detect vibration or water pressure. Oh. Uh, so, so they actually have seven different senses. Wow. And the additional one that um, other, most other fish species don't have is this ability to detect minute electric field through an organ called the Ampullae Lorenzini. And the whole idea of this deterrent is to produce a very strong pulse so that it, it will overwhelm those Ampullae of Lorenzini. Oh my God, <laughs> that's great. Okay, I have I'd... so many questions about all of this. <laughs> Jump into the water, Paige. I, my, my first question is, is there any like, 
evolutionary reason why this is some uh, is a sense that sharks have, or do do we know? Um, it's a good question, and it's it's interesting that not too yes. many other fish species <laughs> um, have that. But I did say it's like most other fish species don't have it, but some species do. So, for example, longfish also have this ability to uh, to detect electric field as well. Uh, so I think that that's an example of a convergent evolution. Um, so for the sharks in particular, it's, it's basically something they've evolved and it helps them to become better predators. It's, it's a sense that yeah. they don't use it from, from far away. It's something they use uh, when they're at close range uh, of the species. And one of the, the possible reasons that people typically say is that as a shark gets very close to a prey, what they can do is either roll their eyes or they have a third um, lid, a bit like, like cats, a nictitant lid that they use to protect their eyes. But as they do that, they obviously become blind um, and then they would be able to use these electric um, sensory organ to keep an idea of where the prey is as they roll their eyes or use that third lid. So it's kind of a, a, wow. a way to become better predator and be more efficient. Holy okay. hell, this is total sci-fi zone. I mean, they blind, yeah. <laughs> they, they shut off one sense to activate another sense. Yeah, I already find the third eyelid freaky enough, and now now we're getting into even even crazier territory. Yeah. But you'll, you'll see that if you see a shark biting on a thing on documentaries, you will notice the eye rolling back with that lid going through. And it'd be interesting yeah. actually to see if you notice it more now that you're aware of it. Wow, yeah, yeah, I definitely will look out for that. And and you're saying they do it in close range because it's it's uh more more specific. They're able to follow the prey closer if they have their eyes closed and they're using this electric field detector. Yeah, that's right. And it's a bit counterintuitive because it is water, but electric field actually dissipates very, very quickly uh, in the water. And that's why those personal shark deterrents, they, they do work, but they're not foolproof and they don't work at a you know five meter range. They're more like two meters or even one meter. Um, and that, that's why it's, it's only worked at very close range because how quickly it dissipates in the water. Okay, so okay. What, what, what kind of hardware are we talking about that that disperses this electric field what do i have to be wearing on my person when i'm shredding uh gnar on my surfboard so there are different products available but the the one on the surfboard we tested is simply a couple of, of electrodes on, on a sticker that kind of sticks underneath uh the board and then you've got the the electronic module that gets fitted on the tail pad uh, of the board so it's actually they, they really designed it quite well they had a previous version that wasn't as well designed but this new version is really well designed in terms of not affecting the the performance of the board uh, or the surfer um so there's more likely of better uptake um, and yeah it's just a something on tail pad stickers underneath the board and uh, the the module produced the electric field across the two electrodes that creates that that kind of field around the board what if you fall off of the surfboard <laughs> well you better swim back on the surfboard very quickly <laughs> you just got to get back on there okay yeah. and that will prevent okay okay <laughs> Uh, obviously, surfers use a, a leash um, so that even when you do fall off, um, you very you stay very close to the board, or the board stays very close to you anyway. Got it. Of course, I knew that. Of course. Yeah. Well, yeah. we we shred all the time. You know, <laughs> well, Paige and yeah, I are I'm constantly yeah. doing. Tr I mean, we've been pre practically around the world constantly. surfing. I mean, I'm yeah. always um, hanging ten. Is that a thing? Yep, I don't know. Yep. Yep. 
Yep, uh, we're hanging ten all the time, <laughs> and um, you know, hanging loose like, as well. What did I, what did I learn from rocket power growing up? Um, <laughs> we've already just we're, we're, we've eliminated all of our knowledge already. Um, yeah. <laughs> so okay, so that's cool. I really thought for some reason it was going to be like a suitcase size, like computer tower that did this. But I love that it's super lightweight and just like a sticker. Um, and I hope that that really does work and really deters people because at least from this movie, forty-seven meters down, it seems terrifying to get bit by a shark or even deal with it. And you, Charlie, have interacted with a bunch of different sharks. I was looking at like this list of species that you've worked with and some of them I've never heard of before and my favorite one has got to be wabagongs am I saying that right <laughs> yeah I thought you'd mentioned that well we say wabagongs that's actually the uh, the group of, of sharks that I did my PhD on uh, a few years ago now um, yeah and I, I think it's, it's a good point you're making and when people think shark they think you know great white sharks um, the reality is there's more than 500 different species of sharks uh, and what makes it really interesting is a huge diversity of species the different habitat ecology biology um, and yeah there's much more to sharks than just white sharks Okay, well, before we dive into this Wabagong, because I'm sure everybody's dying to know about it, we're going to take a quick break. The break is over. Here we go, back to the show about science. We're back, and the crowds are chanting Wabagong. <laughs> so, what is the deal? What are these sharks? Can you tell me what makes a Wabagong a Wabagong? Yeah, I think Wabagong actually came from some of the indigenous uh, language in Australia, and it's um, meant to, to mean beard or, or beard-like or beardy sharks. And that's because they've got what we call dermal lobes um, or kind of fringes in front of their mouth. Uh, and that's part of something they use for camouflaging themselves. So a Wabagong is, a, is what we call a benthic shark, so it stays on the bottom, on the seabed most of its time. Its color pattern tries to kind of camouflage or mimics the, the seabed bed around it uh, and those dermal lobes at the front kind of helps making it look like um, disappear basically in the seabed. Wow okay very cool love the name um, and love that you're saying there's all these different species of sharks because it's true we always you know you think of a shark you think of like one huge shark or I guess hammerhead is another famous one um, mm -hmm. which I learned recently has that electric sense stronger than other sharks um, so do do all sharks have these seven senses you mentioned or just some of them yeah, all sharks and also um, rays. So sharks are part of what we call a, a cartilaginous group of, of species and that, uh, or chondrichthyes, if you want to go into the fancy uh, scientific words for it. I do. Um, but, that <laughs> but that includes sharks, rays, uh, um, and skates as well, and chimeras. So they all have those uh, electrosensory uh, abilities. Are, are they all in the same... Uh, umbrella terminology category because of what you said the cartilaginous uh, uh, makeup of their body like instead of bones they have cartilage like our ears yeah that's right so um, actually sharks are uh, is considered a fish but they are two types of fish the main two groups of fish is the bony fish or sorry, bony fishes or cartilaginous fishes uh, so bony fishes are teleost and these cartilaginous fishes are, are these chondrichthyes um, and that includes sharks rays skates and chimeras wow okay cool and does the hammerhead have is it number one electric field detector 
or is you know the manta ray up there or something um, yeah, it's interesting. We, we do think that different species have different sensitivity to electric field. And it's always been believed that one of the benefits for the hammerheads to be so broad is that it increased uh, the number of these ampulla of Lorenzini because these, these pores are on the snout uh, of the sharks. Mm. Um, and especially with the hammerheads, uh, a large part of their diet is supposed to be rays which are buried under sand, which um, could be more easily detected using uh, these ampulla of Lorenzini. So that's one of the hypotheses for the foil of the hammerhead, um, is that it increased concentration of, of pores, um, helping them detecting their, their normal preys. Wow, cool. Um, and one last thing before we jump into the depth, before we jump 47 meters deep into this film, how did you start becoming obsessed with sharks? Or I guess, obsessed with marine biology, let's say. It's, uh, it's for, for a long time, actually. Uh, probably when I was about 12 years old, I started being interested uh, in sharks and got a book. And I, I was surprised by how much we didn't know about sharks. I think like about half of the book was basically saying, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. And that just got me... Uh, Easy book to write. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but it was, um, yeah, I mean, it was now... I would now, love to get um, paid to write a book about stuff I don't know. That sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah it could be very short, too. Looking for a book deal. <laughs> but yeah, it just got me interested in trying to learn more about it, and yeah, that interest grows into a scientific interest and got me where I am now. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go, back to the show about science. This, this film, I had never heard of this film before. As we said, there's kind of a, let's say a loose plot that sets up what, what happens here, which then we don't really care about. <laughs> like she, uh, and by she, I mean Mandy Moore, of course, Lisa in this film is basically heartbroken. She got broken up with because her boyfriend found her boring. Her boyfriend, Stuart, by the way, which right. I felt very distracted by the fact that a man named Stuart thought she was really boring. I was like, yeah. Stuart doesn't <laughs> want you to party more? Like, I'm not picturing it. Yeah, I haven't met many, like, stuntmen named Stuart. Maybe Trent or something. I don't know. Just... <laughs> yeah, Stuart is, like, kind of, yeah, really on the nose um, like if we cut to him, I'm sure we would just see like suit and tie, you know, slick back hair, yeah. the whole nine. Yeah. Anyway, so she's trying to make him jealous. Her sister convinces her to go with these two random dudes uh, out to the ocean to get into a shark cage to look at sharks. And and really, the only thing that convinces her is to take photos of it and then make him jealous with the photos. That's the whole reason she's doing it right i didn't miss anything here no uh, i think that's about right yeah you know that's the good way to make your ex-boyfriend jealous is do some exciting <laughs> I stuff i guess i <laughs> guess you could say that a deeper love on a deeper level she's trying to prove to herself that she's fun oh, i don't okay. know but i think it feels more about the photos which i mean the lack of planning around the photo aspect given how important it seemed drove oh me God. nuts it's like Same. you couldn't stop on the way and get like a disposable camera for underwater like they sell them everywhere in tourist areas like what happened they, they mention <laughs> photos specifically like two three times yes and then and, and then, then they, they don't wait. have a camera you're right 
they wait until the last second to be like, can I borrow your camera? <laughs> what if at that moment he said no, or he said, I don't have one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then the whole thing's for naught. <laughs> then do you get out of the cage? Yeah. The trip, trip canceled. Let's go back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. can we can we drive by, can we drive the boat by a CVS? I need to pick up. Sorry, uh, yeah. underwater camera. Okay, so they get out there, and like I said, everything is very sketch. Um, but these guys do have a shark cage, and so this immediately brought questions for me. Like number one, what is the process? for getting a shark cage like do you need certification or like licenses to own and operate one or can anybody just kind of go to a junkyard and pick up some sort of because it looked like some sort of just old used you know craigslist shark cage um yeah i liked how, how yeah, rusty he actually looked <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but yeah actually it's it's a good question and interestingly they, i don't think i don't know in other countries but there's in australia there's no specific regulation about the shark cage um wow. so in a way you can kind of get everything there's a bit of a code of conduct uh, and there has been issues well not issues but there has been questions about how big the gaps needs to be because uh, if you get a smaller sharks and, and things like that so there, there's some i guess the, the the different operators kind of talk with each other to make sure that the cage are as obviously the necessary level of safety. But the thing is that these sharks don't actually try to get in the cage, so they don't actually need to be as strong as people think, and that's probably why there are no regulations. It's kind of a barrier that just kind of keeps the shark away, but you don't need a lot of strength because they don't try to get in. Uh-huh. Okay. Interesting. Because in pretty much any movie I've seen about it, the sharks are dying to get in. <laughs> yeah, who would have thought that the movie might be inaccurate? <laughs> That's impossible. <laughs> um, and, I mean, are they strong enough to, like, if they wanted to get in, for whatever reason, they're starving, somebody's bleeding, I don't know what... Are they able to get in? Like, the, the, the shark in this movie bends some of the bars, I believe. Uh, I, I wouldn't think so. They might be able to bend it just through maybe a slash, like a, a tail kick. That would be maybe more what would bend the, the bars than anything else. Wow. But again, a, a bar slightly bending doesn't mean that they can get in either. Uh, and we're not talking about, you know, from a, a small gap to, to suddenly the gap becoming two meters wide just because a shark is trying to, to get something in there. Um, yeah, that's obviously not going to happen. Got you. Okay. Though so that makes a lot of sense. And and it actually brings up a, a question I had also, which is the, the size of sharks. Because obviously in all these movies, we're seeing just huge, violent, aggressive looking sharks. But are there smaller types of sharks? Are there little cute sharks or, or even aggressive small sharks that could swim right through and, and bite your kneecap? Um, this, as I said, there's so many different species of sharks. So it depends if you mean white sharks or sharks in general. But yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of different sizes. And even with white sharks, there's, there are small, smaller white sharks that can occur in those places. So that's why when they design the cage, they think about the different size of sharks that they might encounter. Mm. Uh, make sure that the gap is, is small enough to still stop the smaller sharks as well. I really thought you were going to ask how big a meter is because <laughs> I googled it when I <laughs> was watching this. 
I've actually checked the uh, the conversion and the stars because they're talking about a 25-foot shark, I think, in there, um, which is that's never been confirmed at all. Um, the, the, the largest, <laughs> obviously, the, the largest confirmed white shark was about six meters, which is about 20 feet. Um, and there's been some some sharks that have been believed to be uh, up to seven meters or 23 feet. But that's really the biggest one, uh, and that wasn't scientifically measured. Um, so yeah, 25, um, no go so far. Got it. Yeah, I think at one point even the captain says 28. It sounds like just some bravado. Uh, just, I don't know, <laughs> just trying to seem cool, I guess. Um, so I, the a big thing that bothered me here, I want to know if it bothers you guys. Um, it, it seemed like things fell underwater really fast in this movie <laughs> did you guys uh, clock that yep yeah i noticed that like, as well that cage went down way too quickly it went down like it was pushed off a building it did not occur to me <laughs> yeah i don't know how much of this was filmed in the water but there's actually a lot of underwater film which is actually f fake water and the acting oh. happens um actually in air and it pretends to be in the water so some of that might have come from there um, but a, a lot of this movie actually I think was filmed in the water because obviously the bubbles is not something you'd I mean they look they were real and I've also read that to make the water look tropical with a lot of the the plankton uh, in the water they actually used mashed up broccoli and I read that up as I was watching the movie and I told my wife about it when we were watching it and you couldn't unsee the broccoli once you knew about it. <laughs> That's great. That's so funny. You're just distracted by broccoli the whole time. Yeah, you know, forget about the big shark around it. There's broccoli pieces in there. Yeah, but a nice reminder to eat, you know, good nutrition. That's right. Yeah, they're trying to help people out there. Um, okay, so then I'm, I'm right about this. The cage, if, if you were in a shark cage and the thing snaps, the rope or the wire or whatever, which seems totally wild because there it's in water. So it's not like it's being weighed down by the people, right? Everybody, you're floating in the cage. But okay, I'm going to leave that for a second. Even if it does break, <laughs> the cage would not fall that rapidly to the point that like the girls would uh, pass out or become injured once it hits the floor. Now, um... I mean, they obviously made, the cage is made of aluminium or metal. Um, it, it can fall and it will fall quickly, but not that quickly. But that's only if you didn't have any kind of ballast on the cage, so that if, not saying that it would, but that if something like that happened when the wire would snap, the ballast would still keep the cage to the surface or at least sink really, really slowly, um, you know, slow enough for people to be able to do something about it. So, yes, it's, it's <laughs> that's, metal. That's great. I love how you essentially destroyed the entire logic of this film in one sentence. Oh, there's plenty more ways to destroy the logic of this movie. <laughs> but isn't it just because this is not like a this is not like a sanctioned operation, so maybe they really don't have all of those things in place? Just in defense of 47 meters down. <laughs> well, that's true. It did seem like a pretty dodgy operation. So yeah, they probably didn't have all these logic in place. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one of them, I think, uh, Kate, who randomly has a lot of scuba knowledge, it seems. Yeah. Uh, she says she took a class, right? She must have paid real close attention in that class. Because <laughs> they were arguing at one point before they were going to go. Um, Lisa was saying, like, oh, 
you can't just tell me everything you learned in that class. It was like a whole course. She's like, it's fine. <laughs> that is really funny, yeah, to just to build it up in the dialogue to be like, you took this whole course. Yeah. You know so much about this. And then like throughout the movie, she really does. Like It seems like she's been scuba diving for a decade. Yeah. Um, but she yeah. says at one point on the boat, it's illegal to put chum in the water. Is that true? Yeah, it depends on the states and regulations. Um, and again, if a lot of the cage diving operators have special permits to be able to to use chum, or we call it burly in, a, in Australia, um, but it depends on the country. So, for example, in Australia, they can use chum and, and bait. Um, same in South Africa. But I think that in, in California and Guadalupe, um, they can only use bait. Um, so, yeah, it depends on the countries. But, yeah, in some places, there are some regulations. Uh, in other places, you can use whatever you want. What's what's the reason for making it illegal? What's what's wrong with chum? What's all this anti-chum propaganda? Um, I think that in some places, if it's too close to populated area, um, there, there is the perception that it might um, affect shark behavior or, or create a, a more dangerous place. Um, some of that is not really being scientifically shown, but it's more of a public perception that they, they worry that if you allow it, people might go too crazy and, and start using too much of it, um, and that can lead to issues. Oh, my Lord. So it's just like Jaws aftermath, essentially. It's just people being afraid of uh, crazy sharks. Yeah, and you'll find that with sharks, there's a lot of you know sensitivity around it. Um, and a lot of it is, is down to, to getting a social license to be able to do some of these things, even though it's actually not dangerous because the, pe the public perceives it as dangerous. Um, there's some of the th additional regulation um, is to... to to address those social license. Now, I'm not saying that none of it's having an effect. I think that we have to be careful with it. Um, but how much of an effect like cage diving can have um, is probably not as much as the public think. But regardless, I think it's important to do the right studies to manage those industries so that we can have those industries uh, in, in a way that minimize any impact to the animals uh, so that they can exist without affecting the animals or the risk of sharks. Great. Okay. Wonderful. Kate tells Lisa at one point, to swim close to the floor because a shark typically will attack from below so that if she swims on the ocean floor that she'll be okay how, how do you feel about that um it's true and it's something that in a way it's true it's something that people always say is that when you go diving the most vulnerable times when you dive is basically on the way down on the way up but at the same time that doesn't mean that sharks cannot if they want to um, you know, predate on, on benthic animals as well. So again, it's a bit of an overgeneralization, but it does come from the idea that you're more vulnerable in midwater than you are on the seabed. This, this question is just coming to me now. I'm ignoring my list for a second, and I'm just thinking about what you're saying as far as diving down or coming back up. And that was one of the main issues that kept uh, bothering me during the movie is like, they don't go up until like the end uh, but then it's like not even real. She's hallucinating or whatever. But when they come get her, they basically just take her up. And so my whole thing was, why don't they swim up? Were you, was that bothering you? Were you thinking like just freaking swim to the surface, ladies, please? Yeah, uh, it's, 
obviously when you go that far down you do have to go up slowly because you do have the risk of the bends once you've stayed that far down for that long you will have to do an, a lot of what we call deco stops that allows the nitrogen to basically um, leave the, the your body or the, your tissues um, and that's why yeah you could go, if you when you first go down, you could go up straight away, probably without a deco stop, but you have to go up really slowly. Um, and that's when you'd be probably <laughs> in the middle of these apparently very hungry sharks. Um, and that's why they would rather <laughs> wait for the cage to be reconnected, which I, I can probably kind of understand that. Okay. All right. So there is some, uh, it makes some sense, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But at the same time, as you said, you know, when they finally did go up, they, they, they told her to do one safety stop at 20 meters. Um, and then from that, she just went straight up. And that would be yeah, really bad. Because if you have to do a safety stop or deco stop at 20 meters, you'd need to do another one probably at 15, 5. And there would be very, very long safety stops as well. Um, so yeah, they longer than the, the five minutes, they told her to wait there for five minutes. If, if your first one at 20 is five minutes, all subsequent one uh, closer to the surface would be longer. Oh. So first one, five minutes, 15 meters, you'd might be like seven minutes or 10 minutes. And the one at five or three meters might be 20 minutes up there. Oh my um, God. So you're saying you can easily then, it sounds like, get the bends from just uh, three meters down uh, going quickly to the surface. You, you'll get your bends from being at 47 meters for that long and not doing the, the, de the deco stops on the way up. Um, but yes, you can also get the bends from shallower depth, but you'd have to stay at those depths for much, much longer. So let's say at 47 meters, you'd have to do deco stops after you know, 10, 15 minutes at that depth easily. At, if you are down at 10 meters, you might be able to stay there for an hour or two without having to do deco stops. So then in theory, if they had been rescued via the cage would the cage have had to do those stops as yep. they pulled it up yep they would have to definitely and wouldn't they have run out of their air oh they would have run out of air half an hour ago yeah it's amazing it's kind of these everlasting yeah. tanks which is really cool. But again, and again, you would, in all these cages, you'd have spare tanks of air in case oh. something happens. Not that it would, but you know, you have some safety measures in place so that you do have these, you know, safety tanks and things like that, which apparently- So was that happened. other thing true about how they said that if you switch your tank while underwater, you run the risk of, uh, was it nitrogen narcosis or something? <laughs> It's, it's an interesting one. The, the nitrogen narcosis can occur, but it's not from staying too long at a certain depth. It's simply for being at that depth. So nitrogen narcosis happens when due to um, increased level of nitrogen as you go deeper and deeper. The deeper you go, the more compressed your air, your breathing is, meaning that the more of the gas you, you're absorbing in your tissues. And there is a certain uh, concentration above which nitrogen becomes toxic in your body. Uh, and that can happen as early as 30 meters. But it's not something you'll get, um, you know, after your second tank or whatever. Some people will get it straight away. Um, at 30 meters and that's why as soon as you go 
past 30, you always keep an eye out for, for the, the person you're diving with, just in case they get narcosis or they said narked. Some people, I mean, I've been about 45 meters down. Um, I didn't feel anything, but I've had some of my friends that started feeling it at, at 30 meters as well. So it depends on the person. Um, and yeah, it can happen, but it can happen straight away. And uh, as soon as you go back up, that effect stops as well. So the best thing to do if that happens, you go up and then you're no, no longer knocked. So what, what does it feel like if that's happening to you? You just feel like high? Yeah, pretty much. People describe it as uh, being drunk. <laughs> Right. Um, but it can be dangerous, um, and there's always the yeah. stories. I don't know. I don't know if it's an urban urban legend or not. But you always hear the stories about people giving their regulator to fish, so giving the air to the fish because they're so knocked that they think the fish oh, needs the, the regulator as well. <laughs> oh man, I love that. We gotta help him. <laughs> this fish is gonna drown, dude. Oh <laughs> yeah. no. <laughs> That's great. I love that. Okay, no, so it sounds very serious. <laughs> you were, it is very serious, and we need to take this seriously. <laughs> it sounds like you're saying they would have died from their scuba tank running out of air. So how long do those normally last? It depends on how fast you're breathing, how much air is put into the tank, the depth, and the, the size of the tank. So tanks have different literage. The standard tank might be 12 liters or 15 liters. Um, the standard field would be maybe at 200 bars. Um, and for a standard breathing um, at 47 meters, you probably might last if you breathe slowly, maybe 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> wow. So yeah. Okay, because this yeah. is the other thing that drove me crazy in this movie is it's like, okay, you've been told, breathe slow, don't panic, you want to conserve your air. And then they're just gabbing down there. They're like, what oh, did yeah. you mean when you said that your job was the only thing you were good at? It's like now is simply not the time. Yeah, <laughs> and taking every opportunity to <laughs> scream and to, yeah, just yeah. Uh, like breathe like they're sprinting all the time i i was very concerned about wouldn't, them running out of air wouldn't the talking use up more like you're just it just seems like they didn't listen to that at all yeah no and it's, it's funny how like when they first go down there they do the right thing and check the air which that's what they should do and you know how much they had might have been realistic with like 80 or something like that but then i think the other one might have been down to 50 at one point but then like the lowest the air they had the longer that air lasted as well. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. And they also, they sent down more tanks, but just way later. Like, wouldn't they just automatically send down? The, I mean, I know they had some, like you were saying, some nitrogen narcosis reason for doing it, but it's like, shouldn't they have sent that way earlier? Did that bug you like it bugged me? Yeah, but at the same time, it's actually, if it's that deep, the, the boat might have not been anchored, it might have been drifting. And that's the other thing that bothered me is the ability to find the cage that easily and find things that yeah. easily. Because um, if they dropped something, it would have dropped maybe, you know, 50 meters away. And it's amazing how hard it is to, to find a spot underwater uh, if you haven't got a good mark on it. Yeah, that was bothering me too. When This is maybe getting ahead, but when they when they became convinced that they left them and they said they heard the boat engine, would you really be able to hear that down there? 
Yeah, you can actually. Um, I okay. don't know down to 50 meters, but I think it would. Um, sound travel much faster on the water than in air. So the, the speed of sound in air is about 340 meters per second. The speed of sound on water is 1500 meters oh per second. Oh my God. Five Whoa. times faster. And that means that you can hear much further away, but also because the time interval between for when it reaches your left ear and right ear is much faster, your brain cannot process direction. So obviously in air, you can, you know, from depending on which side it comes from, you know where the sounds come from. Underwater, it's too quick and you would not be able to tell if it's left, right, front or back. Wow. Um, but yeah, because of that, it does propagate quite far and it's quite loud. And yeah, both in gen, you can really hear very well. Okay, but they wouldn't have been able to hear them yelling. No, not yelling. No, not okay. that. Uh, the only thing they can hear the boat engine is because it's obviously in the water. The yelling is above the water. So that, that air-water interface, you can sometimes hear things, oh. but it, it doesn't dissipate across that interface quite easily. Interesting. Okay. okay. And there was also somebody said that a shark can hear your heartbeat from five miles away. Is that? Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, you know, they do have that lateral line that enables them to feel vibrations. And that's how they can detect, like, for example, a, a struggling fish on a, on a fishing line. But we're not talking about feeling the heartbeat from five miles. That's just yeah, preposterous. Wacko stuff. <laughs> Pretty much. And he also, I think in like the same breath, said that they can sense our fear. What's up with that? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> um, no, I don't, think they can, <laughs> I don't think they can sense fear. They've got a great sense of olfaction. Um, that's, you know, they can smell very well. Uh, but that's assuming that your fear will translate. Obviously, there's some hormones being produced as, as people have that fear. Um, but whether that transfer into a different smell that the sharks can, one, detect, two, recognize as being fear, I think that's getting a bit far-fetched. Got you. Okay, um, well, as uh, uh, Lisa says in the movie, I could be here all night uh, talking to you both. Uh, although she did yell that in the morning, which I thought was really interesting. Another really, really fascinating part of this movie. Clearly daytime out and she yells, I could be here all night. Anyways, um, Paige, thank you so much for, for watching this movie, for coming on the show. And uh, and where can people find you? Is there anything you want to tell people about? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, you can listen to my podcast. It's called Mall Talk. It's all about malls. Uh, we have comedians on who come on and talk about their hometown malls and a specific store. Um, and you can also follow me on Instagram at Paige Weldon. I post on their cartoons that I draw. And I'll also post on there if I have any stand-up dates, and you can come see me. Okay, great. Well, I hope to see you soon. Um, everybody definitely follow Paige. Her, her cartoons are awesome. I see those on Instagram. And, uh, and yeah, mall talk. Everybody loves a mall. Get real. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, Charlie, obviously, Shark Beach with Chris Hemsworth is, is coming out very soon. Um, anything else you want to you wanna tell people about or, or, or I don't know, specific uh, on that show? No, I think it was, it's a good show uh, and I think they did a good job of explaining the, the situation and the different um, mitigation measures that, that can be used. So I think I'd, I'd recommend people to not always trust the, the mass media and the newspaper and to try to get the correct information from scientists if they can, because not everything you read in, in a paper or watch on mo in movies is, is real or accurate. 
Okay, so slightly more accurate program than 47 meters down. <laughs> Definitely. Cool. Okay, well, I agree with you. Uh, I, I do think everyone should uh, listen to scientists pretty much about everything, um, uh, including the vaccine. Uh, we, we've been talking about that on this program as well. And so far, every scientist, 100% of them, are recommending people to get it. So do you want to join that list, Charlie, or what's up? Uh, 100%. I am already <laughs> vaccinated, and I think everybody should do the same. <laughs> okay, great. I'm glad to have you on board. I think so, too, but I'm not a scientist, but I also think that. <laughs> hey, I add your name to the list. Uh, the more people we can get, the better. Um, but, uh, but yeah, seriously, thank you both for, for watching the film and for coming on the show, and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Bad Science is a Seeker podcast produced by Emily Feld and me, Ethan Edinburgh. The executive producer is Brett Kushner, and our social media is managed by Blue Whale Media. And please leave us an iTunes review. Give us five stars. I sound like an Uber driver, but it does help. It makes sure people know about the podcast, which we really appreciate. Thanks for listening. Bye.